Welcome to our weekly recording of the service here at Bigger and Blackmount Churches. I'm Mike Fucella, I'm the minister here, and we are so glad that you could join us. It's my prayer that you will be blessed by the message this week. If you'd like to find out more about us, please do get in touch. Contact me at biggerkirk09 at gmail.com. That's biggerkirk09, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So here's the message this week. And is going to come and bring us our gospel reading this morning. reading this morning is taken from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, and I'm reading from the NIV version. Salt and light, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Thanks be to God. We have the next slide up, please. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that, well, John tells us at the beginning of the Gospel of John, that when Jesus came into the world, he was the light of the world. The light was coming into the world. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. But what Anne kindly read for us just now, Jesus' words again, he says, you are the light of the world. I'm a bit confused by that. I don't know about you. But I've thought about it, and I think I understand what Jesus is saying. So let me try to explain it to you this morning. I've got my light here. This is my bedside light. Last night I didn't have a light because I brought this here to church yesterday to get it all ready for this morning. Now, there's the light, and... It's a bedside light, so it's only meant to give me light when I'm reading in bed so Jane isn't disturbed when I'm up late at night and she's asleep. That's the theory anyway. So it, the light only goes in one direction. You see that? The light is pointing down, okay? That's really important. One direction for this light. But what have I got here? It's a mirror. Now, if you look in a mirror, what do I see? I see not myself, but an image of myself. That makes me think of 
the first chapter or the first three chapters of the Bible where God says that we human beings are made in the image of God. So it's like a mirror. We're a mirror for God. We're meant to show the world what God is like. And if Jesus is the light, if God is the light, we're meant to reflect that light to the world. So it's a bit like this. I've only got two mirrors here, but you could imagine if there were billions of mirrors around this light, it can direct, this mirror can direct the light over to Anne, right? Is that, is that getting you, Anne, there? Yeah. Or over to Dorothy. Dorothy getting that light? So that is what we're meant to do. Jesus is the light, and as we turn to him, we can reflect his light to others around us. I think that's what Jesus was getting at. He's the light, but he also says to us, come and be the light for the world as I shine in you. Let's sing a song about us being the light this little light of mine. And we've got to stand for this one. You can clap if you want to. You can do some movement as well. Let's stand up. Let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word once again. Lord, we need your light to see. We need your light to be what you call us to be. So we ask you now to shine your light on us through your Holy Spirit. Inspire me now, inspire my words, and inspire our ears as we listen to your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So leaving the Beatitudes this Sunday, we come to another well-known section of the Sermon on the Mount. But as we move on, let's not forget the context of this passage. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes were only an introduction, and they summarize everything that will come later. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at that, how they connect with one another. Sometimes we, we cut this Sermon on the Mount up into some beautiful passages with some great truth but it all goes together. So this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is still at the center there on the mountaintop teaching, and the crowd is gathered around him. And as we saw in our graphic um, circles the last couple of weeks, Jesus is at the center. The disciples are next to him. They're close to him. Those who are attracted are a little way away, and the undecided and the skeptical are a little further in the background. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, with every beatitude in that first section, as Jesus teaches, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the rest of the crowd. And as he teaches with each beatitude, the call of the disciples to come forth and come to him from the crowd 
becomes increasingly manifest. So as a visual learner, this is what I see happening. Jesus is calling his disciples to come closer and to utterly depend on him. And he ends the Beatitudes with the promise that his disciples will suffer persecution because of him. They will suffer persecution even from the very people who were there in the crowd that day. That's a historical fact that we learn later. Look at that last beatitude in the image and imagine what the disciples are thinking. Let's get that up on the, on the slide. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Or in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As Jesus says these words, I, I can imagine the hairs on the necks of the disciples are starting to stand on end as they think of the crowd behind them. They're looking at Jesus, the crowds behind him. They're probably hoping that Jesus will soon take them away to a secluded place as his teaching becomes increasingly insider teaching in the previous passage the beatitudes jesus has made a distinction between these four disciples and the rest of the crowd oh his his invitation to the crowd is to join these disciples but those on the picnic rugs and those standing in the back with their arms folded haven't as yet come forward and sat at Jesus' feet. And these four disciples have. Theirs is the kingdom, Jesus says. And along with the kingdom, theirs is the ignominy and the pain and the trouble of being disciples. And then Jesus does this, this next passage. In my mind, with this next passage, he gets the disciples to stand up and he turns them around whereas before they were facing Jesus now at least metaphorically in my mind he has them face the crowd he has them facing the crowd and he says over the shoulder of these four disciples as they look at the crowd you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world. In other words, look at this crowd, boys. You are salt for them. You, you four are to be light, not just to them, but to the whole world. Now, if those disciples didn't feel they were poor in spirit before, I think the weight of this responsibility is making them feel that poverty of spirit now. In this passage, Jesus uses two images for the vocation or the calling of the disciples. 
He says that they are to be salt and light. What Jesus says about these images of salt and light is is threefold. Salt and light are beneficial. Salt and light are distinctive. And salt and light have a purpose. And so, according to the imagery, the disciples are to be beneficial, distinctive, and purposeful. Let's explore these three things that Jesus says about salt and light and disciples a little more deeply this morning. First, the benefits being beneficial. Move on to the next slide. Oh, I missed it out. Okay, benefits. In Leviticus, we find that salt was to be added to sacrifices in the tabernacle. That was its benefit. In Exodus, it says that that was, adding salt to the sacrifices was because it makes things pure. In Job, we're told the obvious that salt gives flavor to bland food. And in the New Testament, we have a couple of passages that indicate that salt is connected somehow with peacemaking and with friendship. And as we all know, salt has always been used as a preservative, especially in past times. Now, although the benefits of salt are obvious, though maybe less obvious to us in the modern world, we kind of see salt as a bad thing, that it leads to high blood pressure or other ailments. But although uh, salt the benefits of salt was obvious, in, at least in the past. Even more obvious for ancients and, and moderns alike is the other image that Jesus uses in this passage, the image of light. Light is essential. It keeps you safe. It reveals truth, and it reveals beauty. So these things are beneficial, but they are also distinctive. Salt and light are only beneficial because they are distinctive. Salt in the ancient world, at least, was unique in what it could do. Nowadays, we have things like MSG that can do the same sort of thing. But it was unique in Jesus' day. And light compared to the darkness, of course, is unique. Salt and light are distinctive. Salt and light can be distinguished with the environment in which they are found. The disciples of Jesus, because they are with Jesus, are also meant to be distinctive as salt for the earth and light for the world. Salt and light, indeed, cannot do their work unless they are distinctive. Jesus gives a dire warning here in this passage to his disciples, including you and me, about failing to remain distinctive. Salt that loses its saltiness, he says, is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A lamp must not be put under a bucket. 
At this juncture, I think it's important to point out that the first word in these warnings is plural. You are the salt. You are the light. Is addressed to the whole group of disciples. It's addressed to us as a church. And not in the first instance to us as individuals. Though these words do have implications for us as individuals, of course. But the main thrust of what Jesus is saying is that we together must be distinctive salt and light in the community and amongst the people with whom we live. It's not about, this passage is not about Jesus judging the disciples. He's not saying, if you don't have saltiness, I'm going to send you to hell. That's not what this passage is about. It's about effectiveness. As disciples, if you lose your distinctiveness, if you lose your saltiness, you are no longer effective. And I want you to be effective disciples for me. I want you to shine my light in the world. But how, you may ask, can salt lose its saltiness? Well, one obvious way is that salt can lose its saltiness when it is diluted. Salt in Jesus' day came from places like the Dead Sea. And it wasn't as refined as the salt that you and I buy in the co-op these days. Salt in Jesus' days was mixed with all sorts of other minerals. And indeed, it was mixed with a little of what we would call dirt. If this mixture were to get wet over time, if it were left to sit out in a damp climate, the salt would drain away and all that would be left would be the dirt, the earth, the non-soluble minerals in that mixture. The upshot is you can't be the salt of the earth if all you are is earth. And the second image is similar. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's a statement of fact. But a city on a hill can either be full of light or it can be a dark place indeed. And thirdly, a lamp in a house can be placed in a closet or under a bucket or it can be placed on a stand in the middle of the room to benefit everyone. Jesus, in all three of these images, is saying to his disciples and to us as a church, be distinctive as you reflect me. Don't be tempted as some churches to just meld into the prevailing culture. Don't be tempted, as, as some are, to look like everyone else. Don't be tempted to behave like everyone else in your culture and to believe what everyone else believes. It's very hard. And what he says to us, contrary to, to 
looking like everyone else, believing like everyone else, and behaving like everyone else is to look and believe and behave like me. Jesus says to us as his disciples, get your identity from me. As you study me, as you learn from me, as you lean on me, and as you live for me. On the other hand, Jesus is also saying, don't be tempted, like some churches, to hive yourselves away into a holy huddle, hiding your light under a bucket. Jesus says, the light I have given you is to shine in this world because I love this world. On to the third thing that Jesus says about salt and light and his disciples. Salt, light, disciples, they all have purpose. Jesus makes his disciples something beneficial, we've seen already. In order to do this, he makes them distinctive. And he does this by shaping their character to look more like his character through the power of his spirit. In other words, Jesus blesses them. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are they, blessed are you. Jesus blesses his disciples for a purpose. And that is the purpose of blessing other people. God calls his disciples, and his calling of his disciples is part and parcel of what God has always been about, part and parcel of his overarching purpose throughout history to redeem the world. And God in Christ has this purpose, the Bible tells us, again, because he loves the world. Jesus loves that crowd that day on that hill, warts and all. Jesus loves them so much that he gives them his disciples He gives his disciples to them to bless them and draw them to himself just as the disciples have been drawn to him. But how? How how does this happen? Is Jesus out to make us as his disciples into some sort of superstars for everyone to be attracted to? Surely, Putting disciples on a pedestal can't be Christ's way. Just look at Matthew 6, which is also part of this Sermon on the Mount. Can we go on to that next slide? There in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. What Jesus is saying in our passage and what he says over there in chapter 6 seem at first glance to be in contradiction to one another. Here he says, let your light shine. And there he says, be careful not to be seen. They seem contradictory, but they're not. 
And the difference between the two lies in the last five words of what it says over there in chapter 6. To be seen by them. Look again, if you will, at the images that Jesus uses in these three verses. Salt, when it's doing its job, is invisible. The point of the lamp on the lampstand is not the lamp, but the light that it gives. Now, here in Bigger Kirk, we've just replaced all our electrics, and we have all brand-new light bulbs, which are much brighter than the old ones. But when folks first came in after we did that refurb, they didn't stare at the light bulbs and say, oh, what wonderful light bulbs they are. And I think that perhaps people weren't probably struck by the amount of light that there was in the building. What they were struck by was the fact that you could now read your Bible without straining. (laughs) What they were struck by was that you could now see the minister's face and realize that he's actually getting quite old, (laughs) or getting older anyway. The point that Jesus is making is that being salt and light is not about getting people to see us and saying of us what wonderful people they are. The point is, according to verse 16, is to direct people's attention to our Father in heaven. The point is that our Father in heaven would receive the praise. That these folks who see us would be attracted to the God who inspires and empowers us and who loves them through us. Now, this should be a huge relief to us as disciples. Our duty is not to try and be supermen and superwomen. Our duty is rather to be transparent. I like what one of the participants in our Bible study said on Tuesday. She said that being a disciple was like having the light of Christ within, like we're a vessel for the light. I brought a vessel for light with me this morning there on the communion table. And in the case of a light-carrying vessel, the more cracks in the vessel, the better. That uh, lamp from Morocco has lots of holes in it, not cracks. But the cracks in our lives, when we fail, And when we have faults, only let the light through if we're honest and open and transparent. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that is good news for a crackpot like me. Letting God's light shine through. What does that look like in practice? It is about being authentic and real. It's about owning up to our faults and our failings. It's about letting God be great and for us to take the back seat. It's also about good works. Jesus says that in verse 16. 
these good works inspired by God are works that point to our Father God. What we do as disciples of Jesus should never be anonymous. In the best possible scenario, our works should always have a name attached to them. Not our name, but the name of our Father in heaven. I really appreciate the folks at Christian Aid. They've had to resist a lot of pressure from so-called progressives to drop the Christian from their name. But they've retained it. And I believe that is really important. We do what we do in supporting the work of Christian Aid, and they do their work because of the inspiration of our Father God and it's important that people know that. Now, we know Christian aid doesn't coerce people to become Christians. There's no evangelism involved in their work. But their work is Christian work. How can anyone praise our Father God in heaven unless they do make a connection between us and him? How can they praise our Father God in heaven unless they know that we are disciples of Jesus? To glorify and give God the most praise, of course, happens when these who see our good works become disciples themselves. And that can only happen when people know we are disciples and when they are invited to be disciples themselves, and when they are subsequently taught how to be a disciple. So the good works that Jesus talks about that lead to the Father's praise will usually come with words. That is inevitable. So in summary, as disciples, our high calling is a high calling. It's a calling to be of benefit to others when we are tempted to seek our own benefit. It's a calling to be distinctive when we are all are tempted to fit in with the crowd around us. To be a disciple is a calling to have God's purpose when we all want to carve out our own purposes in this world. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the promise of your kingdom. Thank you for that great big submarine sandwich full of promise for us as we follow you. Lord, help us not to get so tucked into that sandwich that we don't hear your calling for us to go to a needy world and to face a needy world, a world that needs you as much as we do. Lord God, make of us people who will benefit. Help us to be people about whom our neighbors can say, the world would be much poorer without them. In this, help us to be distinctively reflective of your light, your values, 
and your unique love. Help us to be bearers of your image. And finally, Lord, help us to be full of the purposes of your kingdom. That the whole world might burst out in praise to you, our God and our Father. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.